Yes, everybody, how are we now? Today I'm bringing you a very special podcast. Dr. Mo and Dr. Sandu are in conversation with a gentleman by the name of Rashid Bayat. He is the CEO and founder of PYF, which stands for Positive Youth Foundation. It is a charity organization based in Coventry, and they also work in the West Midlands as well. I hope you enjoy this one. And if you haven't already, then please subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow all our social medias, give us a like and follow on Spotify as well. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy it. Into the podcast. Uh, welcome everybody to this iMedics podcast where we have a guest speaker today who is local to Coventry. His name is Rashid Bayat. He is the uh, Executive Officer, CEO of Positive Youth Foundation. So he'll introduce himself very shortly, but it's Dr. Mo here, co-founder of iMedics. If you've been on our website before, you'll know who we are. We're based in Coventry and we educate over 12,000 doctors in the UK each and every year. So that's myself. Vikas is going to introduce himself as well. Yeah, hi guys. Um, it's uh, Dr. Sandu here, the co-founder of iMedics. Uh, I'm a practicing GP. I've been a doctor for roughly nine and a half to ten years now, uh, and I've been a GP for the last three and a half to four years. I'm still practicing. Tend to do sort of twelve or so sessions a month, um, but lots of our time um, now goes on managing iMedics as the team has grown um, and the number of doctors on our platform has grown as well. Um, I'm part of the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Program. And Dr. Mo did touch on some uh, interesting statistics. iMedics educates roughly 12,000 doctors uh, each year. And these doctors are based in the UK and across the world. And we have roughly five to 600 new doctors joining our platform every month. Um, some of the key things that we do include uh, three question banks for GP trainees, junior doctors, MRCP, uh, the MRC psychiatry exam, as well as... Um, the PLAB exam, which the international doctors do who try and work in the NHS. Um, we're expanding into other question banks too. We also do lots of free uh, courses for sixth form students, like we have a free UK CAT question bank. We have uh, a fantastic UK CAT video course, as well as virtual uh, medical school work experience amongst some of the other things that we do. Um, so you can see that there's quite a big scope there. And of course, today we've got a, a fantastic um guest on our podcast. We're absolutely super excited to meet him today. Uh, it's Rashid Bayat, um, OBE. Rashid is the founder of the Positive Youth Foundation uh, and is a, is a fantastic character based here in Coventry who's done some great things for the community. So I'm really excited uh, to hear about his journey. Uh, so Rashid, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, and I'm just going to let you uh, give us a brief introduction into kind of, you know, what you've been up to and a bit about your background, and then we'll get started on today's podcast. Yeah, sure. Good afternoon, gents uh, and listeners. Thanks for the invite today, fellas. I uh, really appreciate you taking some time out uh, and asking me to share some of my views and thoughts and just my story, really, as to how we've got to where we are today. So as your introduction mentioned, I'm the CEO and founder of the Positive Youth Foundation, uh, which is a charity that's mainly Coventry-based. But We work with young people right across the Midlands and influence uh, youth work policy right across the UK and beyond. But my journey, I guess, began a lot before the inception of Positive Youth Foundation uh, exactly 10 years ago. Uh, I've been in this game now for 25 years, uh, and I guess a lot of learning has happened in that time. So I'm really looking 
looking forward to the next half an hour, 45 minutes that we've got together. Uh, and I think we'll be touching on issues that affect young people, uh, some of my own strange medical history, and I guess just general observations about you know, growing up in a city like Coventry, uh, as there are many cities just like Coventry right across the UK and beyond. So looking forward to it, gents, and, and you know, absolutely hope it's a two-way thing, and feel free to fire some questions over to me as well, because otherwise I will just ramble on forever. <laughs> Okay, excellent. So I guess, um, Rash, what we'll do, let's start off with, let's start off with perhaps why PYF is different to other organisations that might be out there, and then we'll reverse back into the journey, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So I guess the um, defining characteristics of the Positive Youth Foundation, really, it's embedded in the 25 years of history. So we will touch a little bit on kind of what the DNA of the organisation is and how we've got to where we are. But for us, I think one of the um, unique factors is that PYF is is known as an organisation that's led by people that really understand the challenges and the lifestyles that many of the beneficiaries are going through. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely unique to PYF because there are organisations all across the UK that are led by people with what they now term as lived experiences. But I guess what's really important to me is regardless of, you know, the title that they give me, which is CEO, or regardless of the types of work we get involved in, our ultimate aim and my absolute desire and passion is that everything we get involved in has the outcomes for young people at the very heart of it. So every decision that we make, every piece of funding we might go for, every recruitment and selection, it's all done through the lens of young people. And we have young people very central to our decision-making as well, which is really important to us because they're the experts. And when we do recruit to new positions within the team, we really try to look for that expertise of people who really understand what these young people are going through and have gone through and, and will continue to go through. And that's why I'm really inspired to be on this call with you guys today without embarrassing you too much. You know, you're both absolute role models within our communities and beyond. And that's something hopefully we can touch on a little bit later and really start to celebrate just how important it is that we recognise that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in that case, what it would be good to move on to is um, why PYF was starting. And I guess that's going to go back to your to your journey. So if you wouldn't mind taking us back to how this all started, maybe it might be your teenage years, I think, perhaps a little bit after. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll resist going too far back in time just because of how long we've got. I guess my journey into this area of work started when I was probably about 11, 12 years old. When I look back now, my mum's a youth worker and has been for many years. And she's run youth clubs and play centres all across the city for, for more years than she cares to remember. So I kind of grew up inside these clubs because finishing primary school, you know, I'd go over to the clubs and just see her, see how much money I can get out of her because I knew she was busy before running off to the chip shop or something. So I was kind of entrenched into the world of helping and working with young people from a very young age. So I found myself volunteering without even knowing I was volunteering. So my mum and the staff at the clubs would be like, look, you know, you take those kids out and play football or you take the register or whatever it might be. Just small things that felt insignificant at the time. But looking back, that really was my grounding into this work. So I left school with a few GCSEs, you could say. I scraped a few. You know, I was, I was always... Um, in top sets within subjects but I never applied myself because for me you know, football was my thing and like many young people uh, and young boys especially at that time 
we were all going to become professional footballers one day. Uh, and I was loosely on the books of Coventry City as well for a while, which really didn't work out. And you know, that's a whole different story about how my time uh, in football made me fall out of love with football in, in some ways, which is a very strange story, but I'll share that with you as well. But given sport was my thing, after leaving school and college with very little to my name, that kind of was my hook back into this industry where, you know, again, I needed to do something positive with my time. So I set up a uh, football programme in Hillfield. So I was on the border, border of Hillfields and Falls Hill in Coventry, two of the UK's most deprived neighbourhoods. So the service was absolutely needed. But at that time, being 17 years old, it was just about getting kids together to kick a ball around. I didn't have this bigger vision of this could be something or even acknowledging some of the bigger impact it was having. So the programme was set up. And before long, the local authority came knocking and said, look, we've heard about your work. You're engaging with young people. We just cannot reach. Come and join us for a year. So I moved into local authority on a one-year contract, which lasted 14 years. As in the council, that was at that time, one of those places that, you know, once you're in, lots of opportunities opened up and they were a fantastic employer and had, you know, 14 really good years before I went off on a secondment to join something called the Positive Futures Programme, which was a national programme um, using sports-based interventions to get young people uh, just more focused and, and have better outcomes away from substance misuse, away from crime, back into education. So that, that was for a few years, I went off and worked with the Home Office. But in 2011, that national program ended after 10 years, and it was my time to come back to Coventry and do something. And because I'd been out on the national circuit, I'd seen so many good examples of how organisations can be established for the, for the betterment of young people and communities. So I came with all these kind of, all this different type of learning, and I wanted to do something with it. So in 2011, we set up the Positive Youth Foundation as a charity uh, in partnership with a number of organisations such as the local authority and a number of funders. The charity was set up and it only started with myself and I'd say a couple of other uh, full-time employees who are still with us today. And we started off with a real blank canvas saying, look, let's just be there for when young people need us. Let's help them with their education, with their mental health. Um, helping them to keep safe from all forms of exploitation. So it was a real broad brush kind of intention. Fast forward 10 years, the organisation now employs around about 30 full-time members of staff. It's fast become one of the kind of largest youth organisations doing what we do. We're able to influence policy right up to kind of the Prime Minister's office and across Whitehall, et cetera, through our kind of policy implementation work. And we also work with a number of funders up and down in the UK to ensure that programmes are reaching young people. More specifically, the programme really targets young people that are either not in education, training or employment or any form, and those furthest from education or employment. We work closely with newly arrived refugee asylum-seeking children and families, so those that are coming into Coventry uh, either through Syria, uh, eventually through the Afghan programme, uh, but clearly that's going through a number of challenges at the moment. And then in, very soon, surely, those coming in from Hong Kong. So there's a real broad kind of welcome to communities coming into Coventry. We also work closely with health professionals to support young people to understand their own health, be it mental health, physical, emotional health, which is, you know, has some real serious outcomes attached. 
We are the honorary partner of the UK City of Culture, which is Coventry for the 21-22 year. And we played a very key role in helping the city to win that title. Um, and clearly, you know, we've got uh, the year to look forward to to see what comes of that. There's also a lot of work involved with young people that are either exploited uh, into violence and all the other forms of exploitation. And I know we'll talk a little bit about that in more detail, given that we've had some real sad times in Coventry over the last few years with real tragedies with young people losing their lives uh, and also many finding their way into prison, the prison system for wounding, serious wounding, murder, attempted murder. So some real, real detailed work. That has some real complexities, I think, and some sensitivities around, uh, and we need to really get things moving and get it right quickly because that's not going away anytime soon. But PYF really exists to support those young people who find themselves in challenging circumstances. That's really how we kind of promote the organisation. We are very keen not to stigmatise young people with labels such as young offender and you know, all those lovely labels we, we use on young people, which they really don't deserve because these are young people that have found themselves in a circumstance quite often not of their own doing. And there's some real, uh, some real conversations that need to be had. Uh, I think health professionals are very well placed to have this conversation and that's the role of policy in the lives of young people and the decisions that we as adults take which then neg negatively impact on the lives of young people especially those that are already facing disadvantage and it's how we can come together as a community to understand shared policy shared objectives so that's certainly something i'll be looking forward to chatting with you guys about so PYF works with about 3,000 young people in Coventry alone each year. Um, certainly not a numbers game. We, we try to ensure there's quality outcomes for young people. whole range of provision, uh, being education, drop-in centres throughout the daytime for those that are otherwise kind of disengaged from school. There's uh, lots of community and evening provision, which is um, could be sport-based, music, drama, whatever it is that takes the interest of young people. And more recently, we're, we've been quite active in ensuring that the voice young people are heard so we're currently developing a suite of resources which will help professionals from all sectors in particular the health and criminal justice sectors to better understand the needs of young people but it's done in the voices of young people so we're opening doors for young people to be able to have legitimate and credible access to adults who are making policies and decisions that affect their lives so that's the snapshot of the Positive Youth Foundation. For more information, feel free to jump onto either our social media, uh, which is at Positive Youth Foundation, or, or our website, which is positiveyouthfoundation.org. Excellent, Rashid. Um, that's a really um, good overview of, of obviously um, many years of work, isn't it, before, you know, to, to allow Positive Youth Foundation to expand as it has um, and help as many people as it does. Um, I've got an interesting question for you because obviously lots of our audience will be either medical students or doctors um, at different stages of training. You mentioned um, basically focusing on prevention, so how you can prevent some of the things like knife crime, um, you know, and some of the serious crimes that you know you guys um, have have kind of seen witnessed in Coventry. Um, what kind of advice would you give healthcare professionals when we're focusing on? Um, prevention of this kind these kind of activity these kind of acts really because obviously we do see lots of mental health especially in general practice 
Um, is there any anything from your experience that you've seen? Any you've mentioned sort of sport based interventions, drama, and other things that uh, that could be done. But what advice would you give healthcare professionals when we're when we're dealing with with these type of cases and a bit to try and prevent something serious from happening? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'd really urge and signpost healthcare professionals to look at the model that was developed in Glasgow around their public health approach to tackling serious violence. It's a really strong reference point to some really exceptional learning that was done in Glasgow because they found themselves as the world leaders at one point of um, knife crime or knife-related incidents. They really had to do something which was innovative and quite unique to their area to try to address some of this. And I know the UK is looking at a public health approach, uh, and it looks different in each city or area, which quite rightly it should. However, one of my concerns or critiques of our way of working is we all too often forget to involve the public when it comes to a public health approach. So all too often we see quite shoddy consultation events which then tick off the fact that, yeah, we've spoken to young people, we've spoken to community members, and we'll do what we as policymakers wanted to do in the first place. So we, we've got to be a little bit braver in who we listen to. And a big part of that is being able to access those young people and community members who, are, who really know what's going on. So through no fault of their own, quite often policymakers are so far away and so far removed from being able to speak to those that it matters the most to. So if we talked about people you know, in a local authority, how accessible are the kids um, who are most affected by this kind of thing? 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night in Canley, Woodend and Hillfields, they're not going to turn up to your office at 10 a.m. in the morning to fill out a consultation form. So the key really is to work with organisations that have um, credible reach to be able to seriously get the views of these young people and community members to feed back into what policymakers want to be doing or wish to be working on. I think in particular for our healthcare colleagues, the whole early help, early intervention and prevention agendas are very important. So when a young person presents to a GP, for example, with it could be absolutely random things, headaches, tummy aches, not going to school, whatever it is that comes back, quite often, not always, but quite often, these are the early signs and issues that something's not quite right. Now, we can delve into the whole safeguarding world with this. Clearly, that's a completely different conversation. We could spend a lot of time on that. But it does link that the whole young people getting involved in violence, gangs, whatever it may be, is a safeguarding issue because quite often there's exploitation involved. So for our healthcare colleagues, I think it's really important to know where the support structures lie outside of the traditional health system. We've been pushing for a few months now around making the most of what may come from the social prescribing models that are being developed. Youth work, youth activities, be it sport, traditional youth clubs, as you guys might remember, arts clubs, music centres. Wouldn't it be fantastic if they could be prescribed to young people in a way that they can be treated as something very positive for that young person's mental, emotional health, where they could go along and hopefully be attracted to a positive group, you know, positive role models, safe adults to talk to, somewhere safe to go in the evenings to keep them out of harm's way. Because quite often young people are ending up in these circumstances and situations by the hands 
of older young people or young adults who are exploiting them. So our healthcare professionals would do well, I think, to tap into their local resources, be it youth centres, youth clubs, to be able to create those links. However, behind the scenes there, we're talking about the most drastic cuts to the youth services that we've ever seen in the UK. We've lost, I think the last figure was, we've lost over 85% of all youth provision that previously existed. Now, whilst that's an absolute disaster, what we've got is an opportunity to rebuild. Because if the resource is replaced and we get a new youth service, one thing is for sure is that it can't look like the one that was there before. Now, I get into a fair bit of trouble for, for saying that, and it's not a popular view, I don't think. However, I do think that our own sector, the youth work sector, has played a big hand in its own demise because we weren't mature enough to understand the resource that we had available. Youth clubs were locked up more than they were open, which you know just is unfair on the local young people. And too many young people told us that the youth clubs that were in existence, they were banned from because for whatever reason. Now that just tells us we, 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 we as a sector haven't always worked with the right young people. And that's something that PYF has you know, been banging on about for over 20 odd years now, that it's the ones that present the most challenges are the ones that we should be working the most. So going back to your question around healthcare professionals, I think it's about understanding and creating a, a real pathway into the local landscape of who can be there for young people when young people are presenting to you guys as GPs or health professionals with issues that just look like they need a little bit more kind of scratching beneath the surface. There are, there's some great work going on. So in hospitals, there are a number of organisations going in and providing critical care in A&E. That might be after a stabbing or a shooting to be there as a first contact because that, you know those first few hours are a critical time for that young person for a number of reasons. But there is some good work going on and that's at the acute end. I think what we should really recognise is you know, just by simple things such as GP appointments, if we could help the sector to understand and have these conversations with young people, then that's certainly something we should explore. Now, as an organisation through iMedics, you know, there's potentially an opportunity there. Is there some training and development that we could collaborate on, put this kind of support together? Because we've written the toolkits for a whole range of professionals. There's no reason why we can't then pick that up through you guys. Yeah, well, that, that sounds really fascinating. I mean, um, a couple of things that you touched on, especially the social prescribing model, which um, is becoming more kind of prevalent now in general practice. Um, it's not uncommon for there to be a social prescriber. Um, I'm not sure what scope they have in terms of, um, you know, in terms of whether they refer to youth clubs and, and whether that's going to require lots of collaboration between lots of different um, agencies in the community to make that work. Um, Mo, I don't know what your thoughts were. I mean, obviously, um, uh, we're both practicing GPs. I mean, I have seen uh, social prescribing becoming more common, but what are your thoughts from your clinical experience? Yeah, so let's get this. In general practice, we have benchmarks, which are usually brief intervention, smoking cessation, weight loss, reducing alcohol consumption. It's a two it's a two part process. Number one, you need to recognize that there is potentially a problem there. You have someone who's smoking, you know, wants to lose weight, is overweight or drinking too much alcohol. And if you apply that to the the area that Rash is involved with, uh, the, I think the the first thing that we you'd have to train healthcare professionals is can they recognize an opportunity to deliver brief intervention. So not always do these patients uh, you know these young 
young teenagers, young individuals come to our clinics and it's not very obvious to pick out, okay, is there a potential opportunity here to signpost to, for, to an organisation like PYF? So I think there needs, probably needs to, needs to be more education around how do you spot a youngster? And sometimes it's very clear. You get a very clear-cut safeguarding issue. And then it all, in those cases, it, get it perhaps gets escalated to the safeguarding team and social services. But you've got the youngsters who perhaps are not quite clear, so clear-cut. They're, they're not social services or safeguarding, but they're not quite you know, at home with a supportive environment and a supportive network around them. I think it's those individuals, if you're able to A, identify... Now, I don't think healthcare professionals have enough training around that. And then number two is then when you're able to signpost and have that brief 60-second intervention in a, in a 10-minute consultation. Because Rash is right. You know, they're coming in for their headaches, you know, their, their runny noses, their, perhaps their ear aches or temperatures. You do all those checks. But then if you've got 60 seconds where you could potentially change the direction of that young person by connecting them to an organisation that could provide more support, that I think is where healthcare professionals ideally need to perhaps step up to the mark and I'm not aware of any teaching currently that fills that 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 gap in between clear-cut cases and the very well you know young individual who's grown up in a healthy environment and actually is doing well so it, it'll be something for me to think about going away from this podcast but yeah, I'm going to pause it there for a second because, uh, Rash, I don't know if you want to um, bounce some information back from there or you want to perhaps delve into a different topic. Yeah, I think just to pick up on your point there, Mo, you're absolutely right in terms of having the ability to recognise what's going on in a young person's life varies case by case. Some young people may be at absolute crisis point and they will present the information black and white. This is what's going on. I need help. But what we've found over the years is that is very rare. Quite often, you know, you need that ability to be able to build up that relationship of trust. And unfortunately for GPs, you don't have that time at an appointment, for example, to, to be able to build that link. So I think the, um, the key really is for us to be able to work up to a point where at least GPs and healthcare professionals are confident enough to be able to have that very meaningful first interaction. Because like all relationships, but more so with young people. Those first few 15, 30 seconds, couple of minutes, it's critical to that young person either being able to build a relationship of trust with you or not. And, you know, we're all working against targets now and time is an issue and resources are an issue. So I think anything we can do to help any professional that seeks this knowledge or just wants that kind of validation of what their practices are, we're more than happy to help because that could be the difference quite literally now between a young person thriving or really struggling in their lives, which can have catastrophic kind of outcomes if we get it wrong. So, yeah, I'd certainly think there's, there's ground to develop that conversation a bit more and, and see what more can be done to help professionals. Just to take that idea forward, Rush, um, I think there's three things. So I think a, an algorithmic method may help here. Uh, number two, it would be useful if healthcare professionals could network allies with organisations like PYF um, or other organisations that work in this space. And then I think you're absolutely right, always approaching the key demographic we're trying to help to get their input. And I think if those three things can come together, you may then be able to develop frameworks that uh, healthcare professionals could potentially utilise that would work. Because the last thing you want is a civil-like system where you're losing a lot of the opportunities. 
Um, okay, let's. Uh, so, Rash, I, I tell you what. Let's. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk a bit about your um, either the because I know you're involved quite a lot with the knife crime, but you've also got some personal medical stories you want to touch on. So. I don't know which one you want to start off with first. First, <laughs> I just saw this as a, a free opportunity to get a load of GPs and health professionals <laughs> for consultation. That's all it was. <laughs> and I, joking aside, you know, we all live stressful lives now. You know, most people on this podcast and listeners will be professionals in their own right. And the one thing that many of us utilize, I guess, as a just just to be able to balance our lives off a little bit is are our hobbies. And for me, football was my thing. Not only you know, was I coaching pretty much full time at one point, but I was also playing two or three times a week. And then in 2011, I think it was about um, two or three weeks before we established PYF as the charity, uh, I had a bit of a horror break on my ankle uh, playing football. And at first, it just, you know, it was your regular four weeks rest, it'll all settle down. But four weeks very quickly turned into. 12 months uh, and there was no kind of progress being made at all quite the opposite so i was finally put through for a surgery now we're talking 11 years ago now almost it would have been 10 or 11 years ago uh, and i'm sure things have progressed in the medical world since then but i was offered an arthroscopy for an injury which now we know absolutely didn't need an arthroscopy so i had all this work done to my ankle i had three months living in a boot six weeks of that was sleeping with this big heavy boot on uh so it was, it was a tough time uh, but there was always this hope that look you know it's worth doing because you'll come out of it and it'll be okay but three months after the surgery four months even you know it's pretty clear that i got worse uh, i was following all the kind of the rehab and trying to get everything right pains were just ridiculous uh, and things were just getting out of control so a year after that I had another kind of ankle surgery which was almost treated as a rebuild and it was done by somebody who was the then surgeon of the British Jockey Association so dealing with some serious injuries from horses trampling on people so he rebuilt it and that gave me the ability to at least walk again properly because I was struggling to walk at one point Um, things obviously start to get you down because you've lost football altogether you can't go to the gym you can barely walk around my kids were still very young then. So my lads are now 22 and 19. So you can imagine, yeah, there were only little kids at primary school at that time, I think. That was quite a stressful time as well. Uh, and then year on year, you know, I was having different surgery just to try to get things moving again, never mind playing football again. But in 2018, I was fortunate enough to have um, approved for for stem cell therapy. Now, I don't know all the medical terms for it, so you'll have to jump in, guys, if I get it wrong. But effectively, what they did in a place um, in Gaboen called the Robert Jones and Agnes Fund Trust, they found a surgeon who is one of very few in the UK that was uh, authorised to deal with stem cell therapy. Lovely guy, real gentleman, real professional doctor. So they took some stems out of my, somewhere in my back, uh, and whilst I was knocked out, they kind of spun them into stems and injected them in. And then after about 12 months, I could already feel the difference uh, and I started walking again a little bit better. Now, two or three years later, I'm still no close to being able to play football again because it really flares up still. But I had my, uh, an MRI not long ago and what they found is that whilst the progress was made, there are still significant defects on the ankle bone itself. 
for the options really well to fuse the ankle or go for another run of the stems. So what I'm hoping to do really is in a year's time, maybe um, go for another round of stem cell therapy if it's possible and see if that kind of just helps repair things. But I guess, you know, I have to be realistic. People have had much worse injuries and lost a lot more. But the lesson for me was just how important physical activity and the ability to do something like that is on our lives, especially if we're living busy, hectic, you know, mentally demanding lives with our jobs. And we should not take that for granted, really, because, you know, I've lost that for 10 or 11 years. Um, there's an element of immaturity from me in that because year on year, I was hoping, right, I'm going to recover. This is the one and I'm going to be fine. I'm going to start playing again. But really what I should have done after the first year is just had an honest chat with myself, say, look, football's gone. You can't run anymore. Find something else. And I guess one of the the dangers was I tried other things. I tried going to the gym. I tried playing golf, but all of those things require an element of ankle movement. So I found it quite debilitating. However, there's still plenty of other things I could have been doing. I should have been doing. So it finally hit me, you know, after 11 years that, right, you know, it's not too late. Find something you can do, which, you know, you still kind of isolate the ankle while you're doing it. But we really do need to respect our bodies a lot more when we can do good things with them. And I guess, I encourage my team and I urge my team at POF as well is, you know, just do as much as you can while you can. You just don't know what's around the corner. And when that time comes, you'll certainly regret not looking after your body and um, making the most of those opportunities. And it all ties into our own mental health. And I know that's been under the microscope following kind of COVID and a year in lockdown, but it's so important that we really look after ourselves. But equally important is that we look around us see who else we're responsible for, be it our family, our friends, our colleagues, people that work with us, for us. You know, we've got to reach out to people and help them to understand their journey as well. Because people are struggling. You know, people have always struggled and people will always struggle. But if we can just do that little something that can make life a little bit easier for somebody, then we certainly should keep pushing on that. Yeah, that's excellent. No, that's some really good points, um, Rashid, there that you've made. And certainly even me and Mo, I think we try to incorporate um, some form of physical activity. I mean, for myself, I tend to go gym sort of three or four times a week. Um, I'll either do boxing or play football once a week, you know, or go for a run. So, and I, I always find that, you know, it's, it's always difficult mentally if I don't do the exercise. I feel very sluggish and, and lack energy. Um, to get other tasks executed. So I always make sure it's very, very important. Even, even today before this podcast, I mean, I went to the gym, made sure that, you know, I went in a timely manner so I can get home, did my chest and biceps today. It was just a, a weight training session today, but um, it makes all the difference. And I think, Mo, you've got your routine as well, haven't you? And we both know how important it is in terms of physical and mental health and also prevention of disease, you know, heart disease, diabetes, um, and various other conditions that we see in practice. And Mo, talk us through some of the things you do as well in your time. Uh, I think you'd like to do some physical activity every day as well. Uh, yeah, I do. So three times a week, I try to do some yoga or Pilates or calisthenics. I think um, very recently, the CEO of Google touched on this subject and he made a speech and it, I mean, the speech lasted only 60 seconds, literally 60 seconds, the whole speech was done. And what he said was, uh, imagine life is a game of five balls that you're juggling in the air. Uh, one of the balls is rubber and the rest is glass. So you've got four, rubber, uh, four glass balls, one rubber ball. And the five balls are work, family, health, friends, and soul. And what, what he said you learn is that 
it's not long before you realise work is the rubber ball because if you let it drop, eventually it will bounce back. But the rest of the balls are actually glass because if you let them fall, they won't return to their previous form. They'll either be damaged, bruised, cracked or scattered. And so um, this is exactly what Rash touched on, which is, you know, his ankle, that's essentially his health. And if something goes wrong there, that tends to stay with you for a very, very, very long time in some instances. Um, but you're right. Uh, I mean, I tried to take care of my health, not as much as I could do. I mean, me and Vikas Rash obviously are working around the clock eight till eight most days. Um, but yeah, so Rash, I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on the, the surgery elements that you'd like to highlight to our listeners, or do you want to divulge into perhaps a different topic altogether? Yeah, I think I've bored enough people about my woes <laughs> of my ankle over the years. So yeah, we've we've let's make the best use of this time and dive into anything else. Um, so one, I guess there's a couple of different topics you've probably encountered in your life of work, uh, your line of work, which um, there's the knife crime stuff. That, I mean, it's got healthcare slant to it. Are there other, uh, you touched on mental health as well. I mean, perhaps somewhere where you feel most interested and we can run with that topic. I think um, health in general is is a very important factor. I think there's you know, some obvious truths in what I'm saying, but if we look at young people who struggle in the employment market, for example, if you look at young people that get drawn into a life of crime, if we look at young people who are arriving here as refugees, asylum seekers, and looking at their prospects, there is a golden thread that goes through all of these lives that if we can get right, then that young person becomes absolutely whole in what they want to achieve. And to me, that is good all-round health. If we can encourage healthy lifestyles, everything falls into place. Now, it's it's not as easy as it sounds because the external factors facing young people are far more complex than they've ever been. I always say this has to be the hardest time it's ever been to be a young person. And I, and I talk to my own kids about this who are now young men. They've had to come through a really strange time growing up because when my lad was born in 1999, clearly there was such a thing called the internet. We didn't have it at home. I think it's maybe because we were very young parents and it wasn't high on the list of priorities for us, but we didn't have internet until, you know, at least 2001, 2002. But in our families' homes, you know, there was the old dial-up modem and things were, were still developing. But if we look at how fast things have developed over the last 20 years on the technology front, that plays out in a young person's life. And the biggest thing around that is how much time they now spend online. And whilst they're online, they're receiving information. They're being educated, either good education or really dangerous, poor education. Now, this is what we're dealing with as professionals and health professionals will see the brunt of that. You know, we hear now of kind of clinics being set up around internet addiction or gaming addiction. You know, that's one end of it. But if you look at the everyday young person, you know, we ran a survey a couple of years ago and it talked about one in three young people wake up during the night just to check their phone. And that's for a fear of missing out on what might be happening on their group chats or a friend social. And if we think about that in reality, a young person is breaking their sleep to check their phone. It starts to make you wonder how that brain is now wired. And I can't point fingers because I was one of the first generation of BlackBerry users and it's the worst thing that ever happened to me 
is that I owned a BlackBerry at such a young stage of my career. I just wish I didn't go down that route. So we do have to acknowledge as health professionals damage that's being caused. As good as it is, the technology is great, of course, how you use it and all that. But young people need a lot of guidance and support around the use of technology. So these are the things that we have to start to think about. The health of young people is so diverse. You know, we talk about simple things such as childhood obesity being so high, especially with year six age children. We talk about lots of kind of physical health issues. Young people are exercising less than they used to. So these are all real natural kind of things that we need to look at. But the mental and emotional health, which is being directed by what young people are picking up on online, is something we need to be far more aware of and we need to be putting in a lot more care and attention just to the support young people need to come off off some of those uh, some of those timelines they're on at the moment. Okay, excellent. So, uh, Rash is touching on that, is it? Because I know we've only got about five ten minutes left before uh, we have to wrap up. Um, so, the, the technology component, which is obviously quite fast moving now. You know, you've got things like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You've got groups you can join. Um, is it certain parts of the internet? Is it the fact that you can be an anonymous user on the internet, which causes some of the the issues that we're now starting to see? Is it the way the internet's wired in some of some of the social in terms of some of the social platforms, or is it a combination of lots of different things? And then the second question to that will be, what would your proposed solution to that be? Which might obviously yeah. that's a difficult question. I think um, my. Reference point will be a Netflix documentary I watched recently called The Social Dilemma. Now, I'm sure most people have seen it, but if you haven't, it's absolutely worth watching. Within it, the creators of a lot of the platforms that we've talked about give their view and how they themselves wouldn't really allow or don't allow their own children to use those platforms I think that speaks volumes. The creator telling you that I don't even let my own kids use it for fear of knowing what we've created. If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, jump onto that. I guess the solution for it is so broad, it's not my area of expertise. However, the anonymity issue is it's a problem. Whilst I get freedom of speech, freedom of information and all the rest of it, which is quite right, there has to be a point where uh, people are made accountable for their actions online. Now, if you just have to go back to the racial abuse that the England footballers suffered after the penalty shootout and for all the calls that were made, which are quite simple stuff. You know, you need to prove evidence, uh, just like you do when you want to be verified on something. You have to provide evidence of who you are. Um, and I know there's identity fraud and people have different accounts, but we have to make it harder than it is now. I think that's the bottom line. It's just too easy for anybody to go on, create an account and use it to abuse people in, in every possible way. It has, it's turned into a beast that's out of control now. And the internet and technology, of course, can be used for amazing things. Like you guys, you know, you, you're reaching thousands of people and, and literally changing lives because of it. And in lockdown, you know, we saw the power of, of the internet where we were able to continue to work with high-risk young people because of the technology. But it's all down to the people that run the show, basically, the big the big players, the technological giants, who are just protected by governments. And that's bottom line. You know, the policy is made to benefit them, not to hold them accountable. And until that happens, 
then we're you know who are we to to affect any change? And that's why there there are pressure groups that are on at government and kind of nationally internationally talking about the need for tighter policy restrictions. And it, that has to carry on. You know, we can't go silent on the matter. So we've got to keep on putting pressure on. And, and that's where our relationship with MPs and wider politicians come, comes into play, really, that we need to keep on advocating the risk that this brings to people. Excellent. Uh, Vikas, because we've got about five minutes left, uh, maybe you want to add something from my side. Although the only thing I think that's worth me- mentioning for the last four or five minutes is what Rash sees in the next few years going forwards for himself that'd be nice to hear but over to you Vikas yeah no I agree really I think um I suppose um going forward um Rash what kind of things would you like to see I know you touched on role models and and stuff as well which is probably something we probably didn't get to touch on today but um kind of you know what's the what's the future plan for you what's the future plan for a positive youth foundation I mean obviously there's some things you might not be able to discuss but um and kind of where do you see yourself in the next few years I think there's three questions there the first one is about role models uh, I'd just like to briefly touch on that we live in a world of influence uh, in particular social influences young people in particular it's become normal vocabulary to to be influenced and have influences in your life and as an organization and as a person you know I'm, I'm forever trying to push out the positivity of good role models we're really lucky you know, in coventry through pyf and and the wider network we've got people like Guz khan you know coventry kid still holds coventry very dear to his heart when we ask him to you know, help out with young people. He's there in a heartbeat. He, he won't hesitate. He's a big hotshot now in Hollywood. Yet Coventry's his home. He'll do it. I talked about you fellas earlier. I think it's really important that role models come in all shapes and sizes. And we need role models at every almost possibility for a young person. Young people need to aspire to become doctors. There you are. Young people need to aspire to become entertainers and, and use their voice for social good. Their guzzies. There are sports people that we work with. There are you know, so many people that we know that are positive role models and we just have to keep plugging them. And that's certainly something that we'll be looking at pushing over the next couple of years. Um, PYF, who knows? You know, There was never a plan in place uh, for the organisation 20-odd years ago. It continues to grow. Uh, we don't have a growth plan. We don't have a business plan that talks about financial growth or or headcount growth. We just take each day as it comes. We take the opportunities as they arise. But most importantly, we flex on the needs of young people. So if a new issue arises or if young people present as need support, we'll be there. We'll find the resource and we'll get the job done. And that's, I think, why we've been as successful as we have. And then finally, me. Um, I think I'm probably the last thing I tend to think about when I wake up in the morning. I don't mean that in a look at me way. I mean, I don't have a plan. There's never been a plan. You know, as as a Muslim, I've always been taught to just do your best and then trust in God. Uh, and I guess that's what drives me forward. If I wake up every day and just try to be the best version of me, but most importantly, improve what I can do for myself and for others, then that's the plan. Just keep ticking along. I don't know how long I've got in this industry or I don't even know how long I've got left, as, as doom and gloom as that sounds. So... Every day matters that we just do the best we can. Uh, I guess that's all I can say. 
Yeah, no, that's that's excellent, um, Rash. I know that you you're almost done because you've got another kind of call coming up shortly. But um, I think it's been inspiring just listening to your story. How kind of positive Youth Foundation um, grew. You talked about your role model, which was your mum, and how that led you down this path. And now, obviously, you're helping so many young people you know, with knife crime, you know, gun crime and all these things which are prevalent in the city, which sometimes maybe even healthcare professionals don't really see. Um, And there's certainly some scope there to probably work on. I think you touched on a toolkit as well. So how we can kind of educate healthcare professionals. Mo, you touched on spotting uh, those kind of risk cases that we kind of miss because they're not very obvious. Um, And I think, you know, touching that and joining that with the power of role models, which you've touched on, Guz Khan, um, I'll, I'll mention Haroon in there as well. I know Haroon Motors is very uh, popular and he'll be very happy when I mention him. Uh, but lots of other people in the city that are doing some great things like yourselves. Uh, and again, iMedics as well is trying to do that kind of thing as well to try and inspire people. Um, and I think if we can push that and get role models, different backgrounds, different people, uh, different professions to kind of show that, you know, you can come, you know, you can be a Coventry boy, Coventry girl, uh, but put, we work hard and then you can go on to achieve. So uh, I think for me, it's been very eye-opening. And, and what I'll do most, I'll probably leave any last words to you before we close for today. Uh, no, we'll give the last words to Rash. So Rash, where can everyone find you or find PYF specifically? So Positive Youth Foundation has its own website. So that's bang it into Google. We have a social media presence as well. So we're on Twitter at Positive Youth 96 on Instagram, on LinkedIn. So plenty of options to drop us a line, um, do a little Google search. You know, we've been so fortunate over the years to have some real high-profile visits to the organisation. You know, looking back, we've met with just some phenomenal people over the years that we've been able to bring into the organisation and, and connect with. So, yeah, feel free, knock yourself out, have a look, come and join. Uh, we're always open for a visit, so feel free. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. We'll, we'll include your links. And actually, we I can't believe we didn't mention this, but it was Prince William and Kate who came to Coventry, didn't they, to visit the Positive Youth Foundation um, and visit yourself, Rash, as well, from what I remember quite a few years ago. Yeah, it's quite a few years ago they came along. And really, the, the I think the, the joy of that visit was when we were approached, clearly it was well in advance of the visit, the ask was, can you bring a group of young people to come and meet Prince William and Kate, and our response was yes. However, they'd have to come to us in Hillfields. Because if you're going to showcase the, the work of the organisation, then high-profile people need to come to our streets where we work. That's important. Otherwise, you're not showing the reality of the work. And that's something that we maintain. And, you know, we've lost high-profile visits because of that. We stand by our kind of our credibility and the, uh, I guess, the relevance of it all. That It's got to be authentic. That's incredible, and I, and I think I'm glad that you you kind of strayed true to the roots, and 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 they came as well, which is great. So um, excellent, and we will obviously also include the Positive Youth Foundation links, um, you know, with this podcast. Uh, so Rashid, um, pretty much eaten into your time. So I think it's a massive thank you from myself and from um, Mo for yes. for you actually taking out your time today. Uh, to talk to us uh, 40 minutes or 50 minutes is never enough you know you're the kind of chap that we could probably talk for two hours but <laughs> I'm sure we'll do that off offline at some point but um, thank you so much again for your time Rash and obviously uh, we'll definitely be catching up with you soon yeah thank you very much all right Rash take care